Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with our body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, I do invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, and we are in chapter 9. We have been working through the Gospel of Luke, and so we come in the Lord's providence this morning to a very well-known passage, beginning in verse 10. This is that famous feeding of the 5,000, as it's come to be called. This is, without question, if you didn't know, the largest scaled miracle that Jesus performs in the Gospels. And it is a very fascinating event, I think. In fact, this event right here marks the absolute pinnacle of Jesus' ministry. This is the high point, at least in terms of his popularity and his status in the eyes of the people. And so it serves a very important point in the gospel narrative, at least in terms of the structure of Luke. Uh, In fact, apart from the resurrection, this is the only miracle that appears in all four gospel records. And so again, it is very important. And so with that, I have much to say to you this morning. And so just by way of introduction, let me read these words for you, these familiar words, which will control the essence of our thoughts here, Lord willing, this morning. Here's what Luke writes in chapter 9, starting in verse 10. It says, When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him. And welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Now the day was ending, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men, And he said to his disciples, have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50. And they did so and had them all sit down. And then he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the broken pieces, which they had left over, were picked up 12 baskets full Well, obviously, this is a very well-known story. You probably don't even have to have grown up in church to have heard something about this event. And if you did grow up in church, then perhaps you first heard this story or learned about this in a Sunday school somewhere. And no doubt the obvious moral of the story was to reveal something of Jesus' compassion. And there are a lot of strange and bizarre things, frankly, that people do with this passage. I had to endure many of them this week in my preparation. Many view this, for example, as a teaching on socialism. Many will see this as a teaching on environmentalism. Many will see this as a teaching on the nature of self-sacrifice for the sake of the greater good. Many will read this as a simple teaching on compassion. And so there are many ways in which people have handled this passage. And there is a sense in which, uh, Lord willing, as we're going to come to find out, that final view does have some merit. There is an aspect to this that reveals the compassion and care of our Lord. In fact, in Mark's record of this event, he records Jesus as having compassion on the people. And because in chapter 6 and verse 34 of his gospel, he said that Jesus was viewing them as sheep without a shepherd. But none of those views are really the point of the passage. In fact, most of them are just flat out wrong. And because the point of the passage, as we're going to see, is to reveal two very important truths. And that is, again, to reveal the nature of true discipleship, 
but also to reveal the fact that Jesus indeed possessed divinity. That is what this is about. And so in many ways, a very simple passage, very easy to understand, not a lot of complexity, not a lot of mystery. In fact, remember, this entire section is going to be about discipleship. And so Luke is going to use this event here in the life of Jesus to illustrate a very important principle as he now continues to train these 12 men for ministry. And because, again, that is what this is about. This is about discipleship. And so I have three points for you this morning. In verses 10 through 11, we're going to see the compassion of Jesus. In verses 12 through 15, we'll see the command of Jesus. And then in verses 16 and 17, we'll close it out with the care of Jesus. So the command, compassion of Jesus, the command of Jesus, and the care of Jesus. So let's take a look at the compassion of Jesus to help set the scene a little bit. Here's what Luke says again in verses 10 through 12. He states, And when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him, Jesus, of all that he ha- they had done, And then taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the multitudes were aware of this and followed him. And welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned to you that the purpose of Jesus' miracles were to confirm the authenticity of his message. In fact, remember, anytime that you see miracles in the scriptures, they were always functioning to confirm the message of God's true and authentic messenger. But I also said that the nature of Jesus' miracles had to fall in line with the goal of his message, which, as you know, ultimately is a message of deliverance. There is a reason, again, that his miracles don't involve him just sort of flying up in the sky and doing a twirl for the people. There's a reason he doesn't just make money appear out of thin air or really any other thing that we might associate with a genie. Rather, they were always an issue of delivering a person in great need. And so his miracles would manifest in a sort of physical, temporary way what his message, of course, would accomplish in an eternal way. The miracles would provide a physical deliverance of the body, so they would heal the eyes of the blind, they would heal the legs of the lame, they would heal the skin, for instance, of the diseased leper, but his message then would provide an eternal deliverance of the soul. And so this is what Jesus has been doing. He has been going around Galilee for about 18 months at this point. He is on a preaching tour, and he has been performing miracles to accompany his message. And so last time we saw that Jesus sent his disciples now on their very first mission, sent them out in the same power to preach the same message and to execute the exact same miracles that he did. They were effectively extensions of him. They were extensions of his ministry. He was expanding his influence in Galilee. In fact, as I've been saying, up to this point, Jesus has been doing everything alone. He has spent roughly 18 months now in Galilee, and he has pretty well covered the region. In fact, uh, as I told you last time, um, Jesus is now about 18 months until he faces the cross. And so in a very short period of time, he is going to begin to make his way toward Jerusalem, but for the purpose of getting himself crucified. And so before he begins to head south, what he does is he decides essentially to blitz the region of Galilee yet one more time with the message of the gospel, but through his 12 disciples. And so this is what we saw him do last time. And understand that all of Galilee has listened to the message of Jesus now for many, many months. They have witnessed his miracles. They have witnessed his compassion. They have heard him preach on the kingdom. He has essentially banished all sickness and all disease and all illness from the region of Galilee. And yet the sad reality is that Galilee still does not believe in him. In fact, the state of Galilee was perfectly summarized in verse 7, which we saw last time. When it says, notice, now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some, so this is the people of Galilee, it was said by some that John had arisen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. In other words, after all these months of 
preaching of the kingdom and displaying of these miracles, they still did not get it. They still didn't understand who he was. They did not receive him as the very son of God. They were not understanding. In fact, the state of Galilee is typified in the very question of Herod in verse 9 when he says, notice, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? So he didn't know either. He didn't understand at all who this mysterious figure was creating all this disturbance in Galilee. And so as the king of the region here, he perfectly embodies the state of the people. This was a region living in a veritable unbelief. That is their state. And so the story now picks up this morning, starting here in verse 10. And so here we see the disciples, or as Luke now calls them, the apostles, coming back from this itinerant mission, and Luke records notice that they gave an account of all that had happened. And so they come back from however long this journey was. Uh, It was a relatively short-term missions trip, just given the chronology of the gospel. And so they essentially debrief with Jesus. And so no doubt there would have been a lot of excitement. There would have been a lot of talking, reminiscing of all that had taken place. Little doubt, I think, that there would have even been further instruction by Jesus on maybe what they could do better. But whatever the case, they gave an account. They were simply doing what most missionaries do. They go out into the field, but then they come back and give an account. And so in the second half of verse 10, then notice Luke states that Jesus decides to withdraw and by himself to a city called Bethsaida. Now, the key point to observe here is that he withdraws by himself, and yet notice he is not alone. In fact, from this point forward, except on some very rare occasions, Jesus will never be alone Rather, everything that he does, he does with his disciples right by his side. They're still watching him. They're still learning from him. In fact, they have been given some tremendous power and authority. And so it is at this point in which they need to watch him all the more. But from the demands of his ministry and understanding what is about to come, namely a very great shift in the narrative where he is going to begin that trajectory down south toward Jerusalem he here pulls away and presumably to find some rest. In fact, in Mark chapter 6 and verse 31, Mark says that Jesus pulls away here with the disciples because the disciples were in need of rest. And so, again, after their first mission, Jesus understands their state of weariness. It was no doubt very demanding, very draining and pulling on them. It would have been very exciting and thrilling, yet exhausting, and so the disciples were in need of rest. But perhaps more than even the disciples needing rest, Jesus himself needed rest. In fact, it is interesting, again, that verse 10 says that Jesus withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida, and yet he is not alone. And so the point to understand is that while Mark emphasizes the fact that the disciples needed rest, Luke here emphasizes that Jesus needs rest. In fact, that is the pattern that we have seen in Luke so far. Jesus will often pull away, but for the purpose of both rest and prayer. And so that is what he needs at this point in his humanity. In fact, he is at this juncture being searched out. In fact, John tells us in his gospel that the crowds were essentially hunting him at this point, and they're not hunting him to seek to kill him quite yet. Rather, they are hunting him because of what he can do for them. And so he pulls away to Bethsaida, which is just outside the territory of Galilee. In fact, remember, Herod um, was a tetrarch, which means that he was just one of four rulers. Herod was the ruler of Galilee in particular, but Bethsaida was in a region ruled by Philip. Um, this entire area, in fact, was ruled by a man named Herod the Great, who sort of kicked off the Herodian dynasty. Herod the Great was a very arrogant man. In fact, in all likelihood, he gave himself that name. He was the Herod that you read about in the beginning of the Gospels, who, when he hears of the prophecy of Jesus, seeks to have the little babies killed. In fact, he is so arrogant that he did not want anyone to rule as great of territory as him. And so before he died, he made certain to break it up into four different sections. And so his sons take over this area. Herod, as we see here, rules the area of Galilee. Philip rules 
a different region, and then there were two others. And so Jesus now getting ready to perform the absolute greatest miracle in terms of scope and just sheer size of his entire ministry to sort of pinnacle his ministry. He does not want to do it under the nose of Herod. Herod, this is again the son of Herod the Great. This Herod though as well was a very jealous man who remember just had John the Baptist beheaded. And so certainly Jesus has now caught the political eye of the region as well. We have been seeing that, and so he then flees in light of John's very recent execution. And in fact, verse 9 tells us that Herod is now seeking to find Jesus. And so drawing the attention now of this petty king, Jesus also about to hit the greatest point of his ministry in terms of popularity and attention, he now pulls away from such an unpredictable man. And so he hops on a boat with his disciples He crosses the Sea of Galilee and enters into a city called Bethsaida. And so in verse 11, then, we see here the grace and compassion of Jesus. This is my first point. In fact, I could have done an entire sermon in just this section alone. But this is where the scene sort of begins. Remember, he was basically done with the people of Galilee at this point. They were very hardened in their hearts to his message after 18 months. They were hearing, but they were not perceiving, as Jesus said. They wanted Jesus, but only because of what Jesus could offer them at a very temporary level. And so in the beginning of chapter 8, we see that Jesus switches to now teaching in parables alone. And again, why? Well, so that he might actually hide and conceal the truth from those who would not listen. Chapter 8 and verse 10. In fact, that is the very purpose of why Jesus taught in parables. He wanted to hide the truth from those who would not receive it. And yet, despite their hardness and despite Jesus' decision to essentially bring upon them a form of judgment by teaching in parables alone, not only does he send out his disciples for one last blitz of the region, we saw that in verses 1 through 6, so he shows them exceedingly much grace there, but here in verse 11, on this particular occasion, we see him notice welcoming this crowd. And this is the same crowd, make no mistake, and so this is grace as well. In fact, this is tremendous grace. And make no mistake, he understands exactly why they're following him. They want his power, they want his miracles, they want his healing. And so Jesus, knowing that that is exactly why they have come, he still permits them to come anyway. In fact, it's the term here of apodecami. It's um, translated here as he welcomed them. Um, But this this is a very rich term. It's, It's the idea of a joyful sort of reception, a very open, welcoming reception. In fact, it's the idea of having a little child welcome into your arms as it's often used. And so again, a very good word, a very rich word. And frankly, if this was you or I, we'd probably be pretty well fed up at this point. Again, these people are just not getting it. They're not understanding. They're they're not listening. They keep being drawn to the person of Jesus, but for all the wrong reasons, And yet, Jesus being a God of inexhaustible grace, notice he permits them yet again to come to him. And because ultimately it would give him an opportunity to preach again, right? In fact, notice end of verse 11, he was curing any who had need of healing. And why? Well, just previous, because it would provide him the opportunity again to teach on the kingdom of God, which of course was his great burden. That is in fact the reason why he was sent. Chapter 4 and verse 41, he was sent to declare a message. He was sent to preach the kingdom. And there is, I think, a very important lesson in that. This is what stood out to me as I was reflecting upon this passage this week. First of all, it does help us to understand the heart of God. Helps us to understand his heart when we keep sinning or when we keep having times of unbelief or we keep choosing not to believe the promises of God and we have those times in which we rebel against him. We do wonder if we've ever crossed that line. We'll wonder if God is just sort of done with us. Perhaps we wonder at times if this was a sort of the sin that 
has finally hardened God's heart toward us and his message of forgiveness can no longer apply. You ever felt that? Very common experience. Perhaps we wonder if he's just fed up and tired of our sin, tired of our rebellion, tired of that willful sort of high-handed sin that we commit from a full knowledge, sometimes even premeditated. Well, on the one hand, yes, he is not pleased with our sin. He is a holy and a righteous God who has a holy hatred for sin. But on the other hand, understand that he is also a God, hear this, he is also a God of infinite compassion. You might be a very great sinner, but understand that your sin is still finite in comparison to his infinite compassion, infinite mercy. He is a God of infinite grace. And so there will never be a time in which if you come to him contrite of heart, broken over your sin, understanding your need of forgiveness yet again, that he will not welcome you. And Jesus perfectly embodies the character of God. In fact, the psalmist writes in Psalm 103 and verse 10, he states that he, God, has not dealt with us according to our sins. In other words, he has not given to us what we deserve. Nor has he rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? This is a capacity to forgive that is, frankly, infinite. Which is to say that you cannot outsin his grace for you. You cannot outsin his mercy toward you. And so here, Jesus, again, displays the constant compassion that he just keeps having for the sinner, the hardened sinner. And notice the nature of this. This is not just a permission to come because he just doesn't really want the people, but I guess he'll take them. Rather, this is a joyful welcoming of the sinner. Again, that is what the term means. There may be no scarier place for the sinner than to be in the presence of a holy and a righteous God, but there is also no safer place for the sinner than to run toward the arms of a compassionate God. He will always receive you. He will always welcome you with joyful, open arms. In fact, again, that is the very meaning of this word. And so he pulls away from the crowd, but is still willing to receive these who have come to him. But second of all, and what stands out to me again personally, is how the nature of his ministry here is one in which, if we're to model him, you are not permitted, therefore, to turn people away. And this is especially important for some of you who are desiring ministry. There will always be incredible demands in your time and your family and your energy. There will always be people needing you, and especially in times when you feel that you are at the absolute end of your wick, right? Right? <laughs> Well, Jesus is the model in this. Notice, he does not turn them away. He does not seek his own rest. Rather, from his compassion, he dies to self, but so that he might choose to minister to them. In fact, more than that, this is a reception from gladness. He understands the principle that we learned last time, that God will always give you the resources to accomplish what you need to accomplish, no matter how depleted you may feel. And so Jesus here being in a state of exhaustion for a long period of time at this point and essentially in a consistent state of being tracked down by this very large crowd who are very needy and very demanding on him, he still welcomes them. He receives them again in joy. In fact, I am struck by the way that Mark phrases it in his account. He says in chapter 6 and verse 33 of his gospel, he said, And the people saw them going... And many recognized them, talking about Jesus and his disciples, and so they ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of him. So they're like a swarm of locusts. This is a very massive sea of humanity who see Jesus and his disciples enter into a boat, and so what do they do? They literally start emptying the 204 towns and villages of Galilee, run around the lake, and beat him there. This is suffocating. 
Verse 34, and when he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great multitude. And instead of getting annoyed and feeling disheartened and getting angry because they're just there for the miracles and just there to drain him, what does he do? Well, Mark states, and he felt compassion. Such a good word. He felt compassion. It's the term, pronounce this one, splunk nidzimai. It's an onomatopoeic term. It's literally, he felt a burden within his gut. And so he felt compassion for them. And why? For they are like sheep without a shepherd. And so he begins to teach them many things. And so this is the compassion of Jesus. He is not ruled ever by his annoyance, but compelled always by his compassion. He understands that these people are in a state of unbelief, and so unless they receive his message and receive him for who he truly is, he understands that all that awaits these people is nothing but eternal wrath. And so instead of sending them away, he receives them for the purpose of one more time preaching to them the kingdom. Again, just an amazing lesson We are not here for us. Rather, we have been left here by Christ to continue this very ministry. And so from a state of weariness, he receives the crowd, but is controlled always by the mission. And so in that sense, then his decision-making for life is very easy, very simple. He is controlled always by the task given to him from the Father, And so even in this, these watching disciples will learn a very important lesson. And as we're about to see, they're about to learn it real quick. And so this is the setting. This is the situation. Again, I could probably preach an entire sermon on some of those themes, but just for the sake of not dying while trying to get out of Luke, let's continue. So that is the compassion. But notice in his command, we see this in verses 12 through 15. This is the command. And so in verse 12, Luke builds the scene a little bit more. He says, now the day was ending and the 12 came and said to him, send the multitudes away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat for here we are in a desolate place. Now, this is interesting because they're all of a sudden feeling bold enough to now try and give Jesus a command. Something, by the way, which they are often so prone to do for some reason. In fact, it's actually somewhat humorous in this passage because, remember, Jesus here, for the first time, gives him a little bit of power, and now they think that they can somehow command him. In fact, there are a few things worse than giving somebody power and authority who's never had it before, especially young men. And so perhaps these 12 younger men here are beginning to sort of let it get to their heads a little bit. They're... Forgetting that this is actually Jesus' ministry, not theirs. They are simply extensions of him. And so they've become a bit bold now and command Jesus to send this crowd away. And make no mistake, this is not them commanding Jesus because they have a genuine concern for this crowd. In fact, if the crowd was getting hungry or tired, they very easily could have just dismissed themselves, right? In fact, it's not like this was a formal service with an end time. They're just sort of littered along the fields. And so this very easily is a time in which they could have left and just found a nearby city or village to find food or lodging if that's what they needed. And so the implied motive here, understand, is one of selfishness. And because, think about it, but while these people here did have an option to go away and find food or lodging, the disciples didn't, right? They were attached to their master. They were attached to Jesus. Wherever he went, they went. If he was going to stay in an isolated place, they had to stay in an isolated place. Whenever he slept, they slept. Whenever he ate, they ate. And so they are tied to him. And so as the day begins to decline, as Luke says, they themselves begin to grow hungry. And not to mention that the whole purpose for why they withdrew with Jesus in the first place was to get away from the crowd. And so what is the implication? What is the implied motive? Well, until Jesus stops talking and these people go away, 
they're not going to get to eat. They are hungry, and this preacher won't stop preaching. You know nothing of that. And so they tell Jesus to send the crowds away. And, of course, qualified here, notice, with words to sort of give the impression that they somehow care about these people. And so what is Jesus' response? Verse 13, notice, fair enough, then how about you give them something to eat? And so I think their complaint was not too smart. They are hungry, they are tired, and yet now they have effectively worked themselves into a job. And so Jesus, being, of course, the master teacher that he is, uses even this to teach them a lesson. Remember, Jesus, too, was tired. He, too, was weary, and yet he still welcomed the crowd. His, his priority always was to minister. His priority always was to deny self, but for the sake of people. And so in a similar way, he then expects his disciples to do the same. And he uses this as an opportunity to teach them priorities. Again, a very important lesson for those of you desiring the pastorate or any form of ministry. Frankly, it's an important lesson for anybody in the church, but there will always be many days in which you just sort of want to go home. You want to see your family. You just want one day to rest, and yet you still get the call. You get the email. You get the text. Your first instinct should never be, so how can I push this off? Rather, your instinct should be, so what needs to happen so that I can minister to these people? And because you are a servant. And so Jesus here is teaching them, essentially, that it does not matter if you are hungry. It doesn't matter if you're tired and why. Well, because the people are hungry, and so you are to deny your hunger to feed them. So, get to work. And it's very interesting, but the interpretational question here is, So was Jesus' command here just a rhetorical one, or was it a genuine one? In other words, remember, they were given incredible power uh, back in verses 1 through 6, and so is he giving the command here so that he might create an occasion to perform the miracle himself, or is he commanding them because he actually expects them to do it? That is to say, is he expecting them to perform the very same thing that he is about to perform? And very little doubt here that it is the latter. And you think that this was a genuine command for which they did indeed possess true power to perform it, but it's going to become very clear here in a moment that they just don't get it. In fact, the disciples had tremendous access to power. They literally possessed the very power of Jesus as extensions of him. He delegated full authority and power. And so they could do the very things that he did. And yet, time and time again, they just had a hard time believing it. They, they were men at times of very little faith. And I think that should give us some hope. And so here Jesus says, if you see the need, then why don't you just feed them? And so how do they respond? Second half of verse 13, they say, well, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless perhaps we go and buy food for these people. So again, they just don't get it. Like John states in his gospel that Philip actually starts mulling through the bag in which they stored their money for their traveling ministry, and he came up with about 200 denarii, which was virtually nothing. And so John writes in chapter 6 and verse 5, and Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, he said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Verse 6, but this he was saying to test him. Very interesting. And so as one man said on this, at the command of Jesus, instead of performing miracles from the delegated power of Jesus, Philip decides to become a bean counter. He has incredible power, but his instinct is to scrape up money. And so again, they are just dense. They don't get it. This was a rhetorical question to test them. In fact, they have done some incredible things by the power of their own hands at this point. We saw that last time, and yet they're already doubting the sufficiency of Jesus' delegated authority to them. 
And so if you understand the flow of chapter nine, remember Jesus has just given them power and authority to accomplish anything related to ministry. And yet now as they look out at this crowd and they're now being tested by Jesus to believe in the sufficiency of what he has just equipped them with, they fail utterly the test. In fact, that is the very issue of this passage. This is a test and they are failing. And no doubt that they were intimidated Uh, Without question, that I think motivates here the unbelief. In fact, as Luke states in verse 14, there were notice about 5,000 men present. And that is not the generic word for mankind, which would be anthropos. Rather, this is the word for males, andros, which means there were 5,000 males present, which also means that there were probably more like fifteen to 20,000 people present because you have to include in that women and children or add to that women and children. And Matthew indicates that both women and children were indeed present. And so they are looking at the upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people, and so that creates within them faithlessness. This is a scope and magnitude that would require a miracle that, frankly, they could not comprehend. And so they become unbelieving in the sufficiency of what Jesus has just equipped them with. And so not wanting to waste an opportunity to teach them, Jesus has them arrange the people here, notice, into groups of 50 and just take a seat in the field. Mark says that they sit down in green grass. And so in verse 16, he then states, notice that he then took the five loaves and two fish. And John helps to fill that out a little bit by stating that this came from a boy who was in the crowd. And by the way, I always thought that it was somewhat strange that some boy would just have five loaves of bread and two fish. Like, what do you do with five loaves of bread and two fish? What kind of mother packs their son that lunch? Well, it turns out that that is a very standard lunch in this day, and the fish would be either salted or pickled, and they did that to preserve it. And so this is not maybe what we think, just two raw fish. I just have images of Smeagol. Rather, they were here preserved. They were pickled or salted. And then the loaves, it's somewhat misleading in how it's translated, but these are more like flat crackers. These would have been more like biscuits, and so this is some pickled fish and crackers. That would have been a very common uh, meal near the Sea of Galilee. And that has absolutely nothing to do with the meaning of this passage, but there you are. And so some boy had a packed lunch, and this is what Jesus uses. And so he takes the five loaves and the two fish, verse 16, and notice, looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them. Now, if I can digress for just a second, the the amount of speculation on this by Roman um, Catholics as to this being somehow the first Eucharist is nearly unending. Um, It is a very common uh, position, in fact, in Roman Catholic theology. And because notice he looks up, he gives a blessing as it's translated and then breaks the bread. That is essentially what you see happening every single day in Roman Catholic mass. But the idea of of Eucharist, it it actually comes from the Greek word eucharisteo, which is just the very basic Greek word for Thanksgiving, nothing deep, nothing mystical about that term in particular. But what's interesting is that word is nowhere to be found in this text. In fact, the word here for blessed is, um, sorry, I'm throwing a lot of Greek at you today. It's, it's the word eulogeo from just which, which we get eulogy, um, literally means to just give a good word. And so notice he holds up the bread to symbolize that he knows where it's coming from. Namely, it's coming from the Father, the one who gives all men life and breath and all things. And then he just simply says a good word to affirm that truth. And so to extrapolate from that a certain church practice that we should now be doing and through which grace is somehow being literally conveyed through the physical properties, the physical elements is a pretty far stretch to say the least. Now they will use other texts as well to uh, argue and defend their position on the Eucharist, but I say all that just to say that they can't use this one. Um, they do use this one, but they shouldn't use this one, and you should not be convinced by their use of this one, and because that has literally nothing to do with this passage. 
Rather, this was simply a very common Jewish practice, something that any Jewish father would have done before any meal. And that is all that this is. There is no hidden practice here. There is no subtle indication that the church should be doing certain things in terms of the Lord's Supper. Rather, this is simply a record of Jesus giving a good word and thanksgiving before he breaks bread. Again, very Jewish and very common. And so at the end of verse 16, notice Luke states that he takes the food and then blesses it and then breaks it and then keeps giving it to the disciples to set before the people. Now, what strikes me again is just how unadorned Luke really is in his writing. He truly is a historian. Notice he does not embellish. He doesn't use a lot of adjectives or adverbs. Um, He will do that on occasion. And so when he does, you would do well to pay attention because he's typically making an important point. But here with his most amazing miracle of Jesus and the scope of which and extent of which would be unbelievably massive, Luke here, notice, takes barely any words to record it. In fact, it's almost hidden. It's just sort of a passing comment, just a very matter of fact. There's zero drama here. There is no heightened embellishment. He doesn't describe it. He doesn't defend it. He doesn't offer a natural or even supernatural explanation for it. Rather, he just states that Jesus simply breaks the food and gives it to his disciples. And notice, he says that Jesus keeps on giving the food to his disciples. Present participle, he kept on breaking the bread and fish, kept on handing it to the disciples, and the disciples kept on setting the food before the people. And what should stand out to you is that he gives the food, notice, to the disciples so that the disciples can serve the people. Notice, he doesn't have the crowd form a line, he doesn't have them come up and make confession. He doesn't have them genuflect before receiving their meal. He doesn't weed out those who believe and those who don't believe. Rather, he has the people sit and relax on the green grass, but so that he can give the food to his disciples so that they, in turn, can serve them. Which, going back to the beginning of the passage, is the entire point. As much as this is to display the power and deity of Christ, that he can create ex nihilo, literally create creation from nothing, as the creator and sustainer of the universe, what is the actual point? Well, this is to teach the disciples that their life is to be one of consistent and constant service. Notice Jesus does not feed the people himself. Rather, he gives it to the disciples, for them to feed the people. And that is the lesson for them. Remember, they wanted the people to go away. They, they, they thought it was maybe Jesus' job to minister, but Jesus says, it is your job to minister. You are not to turn them away to sort of fend for yourself. Rather, you are to be very proactive in denying yourself, but so that you might feed them. And there is, just as a point of application, nothing sadder, frankly, I think, than a pastor whose literal job description from the Bible is to feed the people of God, and specifically with the Word of God, but then they spend their time doing anything and everything but studying that Word so that they might then deliver that Word. Constantly outsourcing, constantly spending their days running programs and doing administration and organizing staff. That is not the job of a pastor, In fact, Jesus will even say to Peter in John chapter 1 that if you love me, then what? Feed my sheep. Talking there specifically about the ministry of the word. That is the task of one who ministers. In fact, that is the task of anyone who would disciple. You are to make disciples. How? By teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And so Jesus uses a physical circumstance to teach a spiritual lesson. And then notice how it ends, verse 17. Luke states, and they all ate and were satisfied. Isn't that a good word? They were satisfied. 
Again, Mark states that they were seated not just on grass, but on green grass. So this is a very picturesque place. may have been remote, but this was a very beautiful place. It certainly was not the desert. In fact, Bethsaida would have been along the north coast of Galilee. This was springtime according to the chronology. And so from what I understand, it's a very beautiful place, a very breezy place. And so you can imagine the scene, you're, you're sprawled out on the green, luscious grass. You have uh, the breeze blowing off of the Sea of Galilee. The sky is a very deep blue above you. And you're all just sort of reclining now on this very green grass in groups of about 50, which would be most likely groups made up of family and friends. And so in many ways, a, a rather picturesque moment. And so the food is now being served to you. And so you eat, and you keep eating, and you keep eating, and so much so that you become very satisfied. In fact, the word there for satisfied is it's a very particular word that's used to speak actually of animals who literally gorge themselves. This is the idea of foddering. It's it's gorging yourself to the point of being very uncomfortable. Like you see the same word being used specifically in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 21 when John speaks of the birds who come and feast on the flesh of dead kings. They eat until they literally can't eat. This is a filling. This is a veritable gorging of yourself. And so these people who are very hungry... The point to understand is that they weren't just given a snack. They weren't just given something to tie them over. They weren't just given merely a few morsels that they could just break up and sort of ration amongst each other. Rather, this was a literal feasting. They were eating, but then just kept on eating until they could not eat. And so they were like fattened animals, all foddered up, and now very satisfied. And then at the end of verse 17, we see something pretty amazing. Notice Luke states these words. He says, And they all ate and were satisfied, and the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up twelve baskets full. Isn't that amazing? One commentator said that this is Jesus teaching how important it is not to litter. We need to remember that Jesus was the original environmentalist. Um, this is not about littering. I mean, it was bread and fish. We're not talking plastic straws and aluminum cans. But it is amazing, isn't it, that there were exactly 12 baskets full? What does that mean? What's that teaching? Well, how many disciples were there? This is perhaps one of the most important lessons as Jesus was preparing these men. The story begins again with them wanting to send the people away, but Jesus uses it as an opportunity to teach that their job as servants of Christ would be always to fulfill the role of servant. They were to deny self always to first serve the people. And yet as they would serve, the promise of Jesus, is that as you feed my people, I will always provide for you. There will always be enough for you. Just don't abandon your mission. And isn't it also amazing that Jesus would still provide for them even though they have already failed the test? Again, he is a God of compassion, God of grace, a God of mercy, And so Jesus has them collect 12 baskets, 12 full baskets. He does not chintz out to illustrate his care for his chosen servants. And that is such a comforting promise, I think, when you're tired and you're weary and you are exhausted and going through a difficult season. Again, this is the backwards way of the kingdom, but the grace and care and provision of God comes always as you seek to serve first somebody else. And God will provide for you. That is the point. In fact, we have that promise explicitly stated in Matthew chapter 6. 
Do not buy into the lie that you must first find help for yourself before you help others. This is not finding an oxygen mask on an airplane. Rather, just keep being faithful to your calling. And God has a way of making things happen. Hear this. He has a way of making things happen from nothing. He is a creator who creates ex nihilo from nothing. And so when you're in a situation in which things seem impossible for you, the point is, so be faithful. Just be faithful. Again, a very important lesson that would serve these men well as Jesus is getting them ready for several decades of ministry. And yet what is most amazing, I think, is how this whole thing ends. Luke doesn't actually record it for us, but... You think that after seeing all this, that the people here would just sort of fall on their face before Jesus and declare his divinity? They would fall on their face at the recognition of who he is and who he has been saying that he is? If there was a time to declare Jesus as God, it was now. This is the creator creating creation from nothing. This is a demonstration of deity in an unmistakable way. Why? For no one can do this but God alone. The Jew understood this. This is staggering. This is literally unbelievable. And so what do the crowds do? Well, John tells us in John chapter 6, in fact, turn there with me if you can. This is how we'll end this. John chapter 6, starting in verse 14, John gives us the ending of this story. And so in John chapter 6, starting in verse 14, notice what he records about this. He records these words. He says, therefore, verse 14 of 6, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. In other words, this is the Messiah. This is the prophet. This is the one that these people have been waiting for. Verse 15, so Jesus perceiving that they were intending now to come and take him by force to make him king, He withdrew again to a mountain by himself alone. Why does he do that? Very interesting. Why does he pull away despite these people now calling for his kingship by force, wanting to make him king? Is that not what he's come for? Well, because at the greatest miracle that he would ever perform, and at the height of his celebrity status, where again, this is the absolute pinnacle of his popularity, the only conclusion that they can draw is perhaps this is the one who can finally overthrow Rome and establish our welfare state. This man can provide. This man can sustain us. This is a man that can set up national utopia. And because they do not recognize that his kingship belongs to a kingdom not of this world. And so Jesus sends the disciples away. He tells them to get back into a boat. They cross back over to the other side of Galilee. And so in verse 22, John states that the crowd shows up again the next morning to the exact same spot, hoping to get more food from Jesus that he will feed them. Here is their miracle boy. He is the one that can give them what they want. And so they show up. And then when they don't find him, they run back to the other side of Galilee and assuming that he's gone back to Capernaum. And so in verse 25, notice John states, and when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered and said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, talking about the healings and the feeding of the people, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. So do not work for the food which perishes, 
but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, Hear this, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. What is he saying? Well, that you saw the signs, you witnessed the miracles. You were shown deity, you were preached to the kingdom, your bodies were healed, you saw me create abundance from nothing, and yet what is the sum total of all that magnificent revelation? Well, that you still do not believe. Rather, you seek me, but you seek me for temporal benefit. You seek me not because you saw the signs and therefore understood what the signs were supposed to be testifying to you about. Rather, you seek me because you ate bread and you were satisfied. And that word satisfied, understand, is not a good thing. He is saying that you were satisfied with temporary fleeting realities. Verse 27, so do not work for the food that perishes. So you're running all over the place. You're trying to catch up with me. You're working incredibly hard for a little bit of bread. You want to take me by force. But the problem with you is that you are so consumed with now. You are so wrapped up in fleeting politics. You are so wrapped up in trying to free yourself from Rome. You are so wrapped up in wanting your welfare state and your utopia and what you think all the Old Testament promises were supposed to be saying, that you keep laboring for physical bread, that is, you keep killing yourself for the food that perishes, that you are so blinded to seeing the bread that gives eternal life. And beloved, I tell you that there are many who want to follow Jesus, but merely for what they think Jesus can offer them in the here and now. Consumeristic Christianity, and for which, by the way, many churches have discovered how to best market for. Like how many sermons are preachers this very morning preaching right now about the temporary benefits of following Jesus? Come to Jesus, he'll solve your anxiety. Come to Jesus, he'll help your depression. Come to Jesus, he'll fix your marriage. Come to Jesus, he'll solve your loneliness. Come to Jesus, he wants to do amazing things for you. Come to Jesus, he wants to give you your best life now. There is nothing new under the sun, is there? It's the same old consumerism that began in Galilee 2,000 years ago. And so he says to these people that you are not here because you have understood the purpose of the signs. Rather, you are here because you just had the most phenomenal meal of your life, and now you want breakfast. And no doubt it probably was the most phenomenal meal, uncursed bread, uncursed fish. Verse 30, notice, so they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Excuse me? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So apparently it's not good enough because it didn't come out of heaven, it just merely came out of my hands. Such a hardened people. And now they grumble because their fathers, in the wilderness, I might add, got manna every single day. So why don't you, Jesus, give us bread every day? After all, Moses was God's prophet and he got bread for Israel every day. And so why don't you do that if indeed you too are the true prophet of God? 
Verse 32, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, what's he saying? Well, he's saying that you have the bread from heaven and why? Well, because I am the bread. Bread is me. And of course, they just didn't get it. They still thought he was still talking about physical bread. So they say in verse 34, Lord, always then give us this bread. But Jesus said to them, 35, I am, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I, here it is, but I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Such a sad ending, is it not? Verse 41, what do they do? They then just grumble among themselves in unbelief. So as one man says, they ate a meal one evening on the shore of Galilee, but then went to hell. They were shown time and time again, constant grace, constant compassion. They were offered the bread that does not perish. They saw Jesus. They, in a certain way, understood Jesus. They were offered the bread that could satisfy them for more than a mere evening. And yet, from their hardness of heart and blinded by the temporary lusts and desires, they would not receive Jesus for ultimately who he truly was. They could not comprehend that he did not come to establish their earthly kingdom. They could not see that he came to offer an eternal forgiveness of sin. And he had come to ransom a people, but for an eternal kingdom. And so the question this morning that Luke wants us to ask is, so what about you? Same question that we keep being presented with every single week because it is the question of Luke's gospel. But in seeing the words and the miracles of Jesus, who is it that you understand him to be? Again, the most important question that you will ever answer. Everything in this world will ultimately disappoint you. Everything fails, everything breaks down, everything ultimately disappoints, everything may fill, but always and only for an evening. But I tell you the truth, that there is one who can bring to your soul an eternal satisfaction. And mostly because in his work of the cross, he satisfied your eternal debt. He has dealt with your greatest problem, namely your guilt before the eyes of an eternal and holy judge. And so the question is, so will you receive him for who he truly is? Do you understand that he has not come to provide for you a temporary fix? Rather, he has come to resolve your eternal guilt And if you see him for that, that he is indeed your eternal guilt bearer, then he says that you can come to him. You can come to him, and he promises that he will always receive you with a joyful, compassionate reception. So run to him, repent of your sin, and receive eternal life. Let's pray. And Father, thank you for the opportunity to reflect upon this word. Pray that by the power of your spirit that you would help us to receive such things. It is such a familiar passage, but one that yields for us an important lesson. And so I do pray that you would help us to believe such things. 
May we as a church see Christ, see your son as our model. May we be a church that can serve people and display such compassion for the cause of the gospel. May we live as he lived and served as he served. May we see the world as he saw it, that they are like sheep without a shepherd. And then for those who perhaps still need to believe, may they not see Jesus as just a means to a temporary fulfillment. Rather, may they see him as that gracious, compassionate, sovereign Lord of the universe who's come to redeem and rescue the sinner. For he is worthy of full allegiance and full devotion. And so as we now turn to song and remember the death of our Lord and the Lord's Supper, I do pray that you would be honored. I pray that the people's souls here this morning would be refreshed. And most of all, I pray that Jesus' name would be exalted among us. And so we do ask these things in his name. Amen.